Reading the Globe summarizes, synthesizes, and criticizes the week's most important and fascinating stories. Here's your host, Michael Washburn. This is Reading the Globe. It's October 15, 2021. I'm Michael Washburn, reporting live from New York. Wither the European Union. People will go on arguing for years to come about whether British voters made the right choice in opting to leave the EU. The reasons for voting in favor of the Brexit were many and varied, but with some hindsight, five and a half years after the June 2016 vote, it is hard to deny that voters frustrated with the workings of the EU had a basis for their grievances. Just look at the gas crisis that is making life in the EU unbearable for millions of people. An article by Lawrence Norman in the Wall Street Journal's October 14 edition, Gas Crisis Prompts Fresh Proposals from EU, quotes Energy Commissioner Kadri Simpson, calling the crisis an unusual situation and maintaining the EU energy policies over the last 20 years have worked well. But you do have to wonder about the wisdom of policies that led the EU to one of the worst crises in its history. The article details how the European Commission is grasping for solutions to deal with the tripling of wholesale gas prices within EU borders and the spike in inflation, which jeopardizes the economic recovery everyone has been hoping for as the continent tries to move away from the COVID pandemic. In the face of the crisis, a desperate EU leadership has been putting forth a range of measures that include tax cuts, emergency income relief to people struggling to pay energy costs, negotiations with foreign suppliers over import prices, and joint gas purchases with a view to amassing larger reserves. By Simpson's own admission, the reserves on hand at present account for only about 20% of the EU's yearly demand, and there need to be more facilities and enhanced access to them all through the EU to avoid fiascos like this one. Not surprisingly for such a large and diverse economic union, a marked lack of consensus exists among the 27 member states about how best to proceed here. Spain and Italy are in favor of joint EU purchases to ramp up the reserves and alleviate price increases, while France favors a greater role for nuclear energy and a reconsideration of the price-setting mechanisms governing the energy market. The situation is a mess, and you could not ask for a more perfect illustration of the incoherence at the heart of the very concept of the EU. Countries with markedly different economies, politics, Natural resources, demographics, cultures, and traditions are supposed to agree on cookie-cutter solutions to complex problems that do not play out the same way within the regions and micro-regions of even a single country, let alone across the length and breadth of the EU. If Italy, Spain, and other nations were to act without regard for the EU's criteria, they could simply negotiate with the world's gas providers in a manner tailored to their individual needs and could reach deals or fail to do so based on their own negotiating skills and the soundness of their proposed terms. Instead, they feel a need to go with the flow. EU membership makes totally independent action impossible. One size must fit all. You might think that this latest fiasco would prompt introspection about the purpose and utility of the EU, and perhaps even inspire more mature reflections on the Brexit. But instead of pausing to ask questions, some commentators are actually calling for immediate further expansion of the EU. The October 9 issue of The Economist magazine contains the weekly feature appearing under the byline Charlemagne, which looks at issues of concern to Europe. The author of this column argues in favor of adding more nations right away, particularly from that region known as the West Balkans, such as Albania, Bosnia-Herzegovina, Kosovo, and Macedonia. 
Doing so will add many millions more consumers with acute energy needs, and will make it still harder, if such a thing is even imaginable, to achieve consensus on how to meet the continent's needs. The problems inherent in the EU are not going away. Yet if you dare to say anything positive about the Brexit, some people will never speak to you again. A new direction for New York? Mayoral candidate Eric Adams once again has refused to mince words or tiptoe around an issue of growing concern to New Yorkers in this progressive age. Adams spoke out this past week about the scourge of shoplifting that has left entire shelves bare in some stores, drugstores in particular, and about the need to back law enforcement unequivocally, a brave stance to take in this age of rabid anti-police activism and hysterical rhetoric. An article in the New York Post on October 14, Mayoral hopeful Eric Adams talks tough against NYC shoplifting spike, quotes Adams, saying that once he takes office, his administration will adopt an aggressive stance toward the crime wave plaguing New York. Adams says that on the day he takes office, he plans to visit precincts in person and reiterate his strong support for the police. Adams spoke partly in response to public concerns aroused by repeat offenders like the so-called Man of Steel, S-T-E-A-L, whom police have arrested no fewer than 57 times this year, including 46 arrests for retail theft. It begs belief that someone arrested that many times could be out on the street. One would like to meet the judge who feels confident that someone whose proclivity to commit crimes has been so often on display that the police have arrested this person 56 times is unlikely to do anything that might incur a 57th arrest and can therefore be safely released. But under the so-called leadership of progressive Mayor Bill de Blasio, Gotham has repeatedly taken steps backward toward the vicious Hobbesian hell that some of us lived through in the 1980s and early 1990s. As sociological excuses and rationalizations for crimes continue to eclipse common-sense, safety-minded approaches to the problem. It should tell you something about the extent and severity of the crime problem today and public sentiment about the issue, that the mayoral election in this long-time liberal democratic stronghold has come down to a contest between the plain-spoken, tough-minded Democrat Eric Adams and Republican candidate Curtis Sliwa, the founder and head of the Guardian Angels, an organization dedicated to combating crime. Nearly everyone, on the right and left, is fed up with the deteriorating conditions and the undoing of progress, one with excruciating difficulty in the fight against savagery and lawlessness. Curtains for Durst Robert Durst, the real estate heir suspected in crimes that provided tabloid fodder and inspired both a feature film and a six-part HBO documentary, is unlikely ever to be a free man again. Evan Simmons' October 15 article in the California Globe, Robert Durst Receives Life Sentence in L.A. Superior Court Ruling, details the outcome of a lengthy proceeding complicated by the COVID pandemic and concerns about the health of the wheelchair-bound 78-year-old defendant who suffers from a long list of ailments, yet whose lawyers took the unusual step of putting him on the stand to face questioning. Los Angeles County Superior Court Judge Mark Windham has sentenced Durst to spend the remainder of his life in prison with no chance of parole for the murder of Susan Berman, whose body police found in her Benedict Canyon home on December 24, 2000. 
Evidence implicating Durst in the crime included letters with the same misspellings that Durst had made in other correspondence. Durst is also on camera in the HBO documentary confessing to having committed murders. In addition to handing down the sentence, the judge flatly denied a request from Durst's attorneys for a new trial, stating that the evidence of Durst's guilt was overwhelming. As Simmons' article makes clear, even this is unlikely to be the end of the real estate heir's legal troubles. Police in New York still want to prosecute Durst for the unsolved disappearance and presumed murder of his wife, Kathleen, back in 1982. If the New York police are able to get a conviction, then power to them. But this will surely be a case of too little, too late. An article on the website Biography.com, entitled 10 Bizarre Facts About Robert Durst and His Murder Case, reminds us of many strange aspects of Durst's behavior that competent investigators might have been able to use as part of a successful prosecution after Kathleen's disappearance. Durst gave conflicting accounts of the last time he had seen his wife in their home in Westchester. He did not even report her missing for four days after she vanished. The man clearly had something to hide, and it really might have paid to dig a little deeper. The Biography.com piece reminds us that Durst's latest victim, Berman, whom police believe Durst wanted out of the picture because she might have had things to share about the fate of Kathleen, spent part of her childhood in the company of Las Vegas mobsters like Bugsy Siegel, who, incidentally, appears in the film The Godfather as Mo Green. At the climax of that film, when all the scores are being settled, Michael Corleone arranges for a henchman to shoot Mo Green at close range in the head which happens to be what the Los Angeles court has just concluded Durst did to Berman. Life imitates art in one of the most gruesome ways imaginable. Bronze Age Infrastructure Project Much of the political buzz in recent weeks has been about President Biden's massive and ludicrously expensive infrastructure project. An intriguing article in Archaeology Magazine's November-December 2021 issue, written by executive editor Daniel Weiss, takes the reader back to a place in time, the plains of northern Italy late in the second millennium BC, when members of local communities got together and put their talents to work, to develop a rather different kind of structure from anything envisioned in the present-day bill. On the outskirts of the town of Noseto, south of the Po River in northern Italy, a team of researchers has excavated a structure that first began to come to light in the course of digging during a construction project. It is a rectangular chamber cleared out of the earth, its floor and walls secured by rows of long connected wooden poles and more than 240 interlacing boards. Forty feet long, 23 feet wide and 16 feet deep, the structure has two different levels, one of which has been dated to 1444 BC and the other to 1432 BC. University of Milan geoarchaeologist Andrea Zerboni said that she and her colleagues originally thought it was some kind of residential building. In size and design, the structure is analogous to a swimming pool, but its purpose appears not to have been recreational or residential so much as the storage and display of votive items that were important culturally to the local agricultural community, such as vases, baskets, plows, and figurines of pigs, cows, horses, and people. The items are sophisticated in design and aesthetically pleasing. 
Weiss's article quotes Cornell University archaeologist Stuart Manning, who hypothesizes that local rulers or priests may have coordinated the work of farmers in the area with the aim of bonding members of the local community or even different communities, giving them a common purpose, and building something in which they could feel a sense of shared pride. The article reminds us of a time when communities could work together to establish a monument to those things that were essential to the way of life they shared. Agriculture, indeed, is the thing that most directly defines terra mare communities, whose name derives from the terms rich and land in the local Emilian dialect, and it is hard to imagine their existence without it. How stark is the contrast with the kind of infrastructure project foisted on the American public in 2021, which depends so heavily on a budget resolution that nearly half the lawmakers in the Senate, all 49 Republicans who voted on it, opposed. President Biden's infrastructure plan caters to a number of special interests that do not even pretend to represent the wishes of the majority of Americans, many of whom rightly see no basis in the Constitution for things such as universal pre-K or community college tuition funded by the federal government. These special interests represent a sliver of the populace emboldened by the rhetoric of the current administration. Constitutional government in the U.S. has long been a relic of a bygone age. Written and read by Michael Washburn for Audio Hopper.